We don't have time to practice. Just just run it like you're okay. morning. I sound really loud. So I will get louder, obviously. Reminder, the Lord's Supper is December 12th, coming up, <clears throat> followed by a fellowship snack, nothing fancy. Other than that, I don't think there's any other pressing announcements. We have the call to worship. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Let's bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. stand and sing Psalm 149, Psalm 149b.
let us pray. And so, God, indeed, we praise and give you all the glory that from first to last you have redeemed and continue to save us, Lord, and preserve us and bring us, Lord, through your special providence and history, God, and that is how you watch over each and one of your people, God, and you brought us here, in particular here at Providence, Lord, to sing praises before you, to gather together, God, and to magnify your name publicly. We pray, Lord, to continue to be with us, Lord, and draw us nigh unto you through the blood of Christ. We pray all these things in accordance to the Lord's prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to As it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be, without end. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We have the reading of Psalm 24, which is inside the bulletin. Psalm 24. We will read it responsively, that is back and forth, I will read the boldface. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And so we see the psalmist here, obviously highlighting the greatness of our Lord and Savior, who made all things, and he founded and established all things that we find ourselves in, indeed now, and that those who ascend to the Lord are those whom the Lord has purified, they are those with clean hands and pure hearts. Ultimately, of course, we feel our sins and know that we're not pure enough, uh, or clean enough, and thus uh, we are acknowledging our need of the Savior. And so he is speaking here, as David often does, of the relative cleanliness and purity of heart, that is, those who are regenerated, those who love the Lord, and are striving in spite of their sins, and of course, ultimately trust in Jesus Christ for the perfection, and to bring them in by the blood of Christ into God's holy presence. Let us bow our hearts in prayer before God's people through the covenant community prayer. Let us pray.
And so we who are your people, God, and we read such psalms and we're reminded of Christ Jesus who has absolute perfection and purity of heart, Lord, who lived and died in our stead, who represented us, Lord, as our advocate and continue to do that right now, Lord, in your presence, interceding for us, Lord, joyfully and willingly and continually, Lord, to cover our sins every day. And because of that, Lord, we can come before you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can come with joyous hearts. We can come acknowledging our sins most freely, acknowledging that we struggle with them, Lord, and that we we fight against them and we hate them. We confess our sins, Lord, of forgetting your greatness, perhaps, and of your goodness towards us of excessive worry, perhaps, and other sins, Lord, in which we are uh, distracted from giving you glory when it's appropriate and uh, proper God in our lives, especially on the Lord's Day when we are given, uh, again, in your freedom that you've given us through America, God, to have worship on your day, not to be uh, harassed or molested by others, Lord, to be gathered together as your people, drawn unto you by your grace and mercy. Help us, Lord to acknowledge our sins, and to flee to the blood of Christ Jesus, to repent, Lord, yes, even daily of our sins, to be open to correction, God. At the same time, to be encouraged, Lord, that we are indeed filled by your Holy Spirit and are doing good works, simple things such as loving our family, leading our family, disciplining our family, Lord, feeding our family, taking care of our family and our children and one another, and submitting to our parents, Lord, and working hard in school and work and wherever else that may be, God, in life. These things are acceptable through Christ Jesus, Lord, our Savior. We're thankful for that, God. We pray, Lord, for our families that we would continue uh, to take seriously our calling as parents, as husband and wife, as father and mother, and our respective duties, Lord, that the wives will continue to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord, and husbands to love their wives and to uh, take care of them, God. And we pray, Lord, for the children to submit to both parents, Lord, and uh, to do so joyfully, again, in the Lord. That is because they love you, therefore, Lord, they are called uh, to these duties and responsibilities most freely and willingly, God. Help us, Lord, not to do such things begrudgingly and with bitterness in our hearts, God, and to do it so freely uh, and desirous, Lord, to fulfill your will and to love one another as we are called to do. Protect our families, we pray, God, from the wickedness of the world around us. We pray especially for our children, Lord, that uh, your spirit would indwell them in a young age and that we would continue to protect and instruct them in holiness and especially in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the good news therein. We pray, God, not only for our families with children, but families without children or children who have grown up and left the household, God, that you would be with them, uh, both parents, Lord, and uh, husband and wife, God, that you would draw them close to one another, and they, may they be a good and positive influence upon their children and grandchildren, if that is applicable, God, and that uh, they would continue to pray for them and do what they can. And especially it's hard, Lord, when the kids leave the house and they can say little, and so may parents learn uh, with older children, God, uh, learned the hardness, uh, but the importance of being quiet at times and knowing they have a limited influence upon their children compared to when they were 10. Our God and Savior, we ask that you would be with the singles among us, Lord, that you would protect them and keep them pure, especially in day and age, which doesn't take purity in marriage and, and singleness, Lord, seriously at all, but fornication runs uh, rampant in our society, God. Help them, we pray, to do the right thing, to stand firm, to be to be busy and have uh, usefulness in your kingdom and in their jobs, Lord, to have busy hands and a busy mind, Lord, so they would not be idle and be, therefore become the devil's hands and the devil's playground in their mind, God. Indeed, for all of us, we pray, that we would stay gainfully employed. We pray in that regards with respect to work, 
in making money and living in an economy as you design things in this world uh, for good pay, God, uh, for good hours, for good co-workers, Lord. We pray and ask, Lord, for Christians, especially not just in our church, but others, uh, sister churches, Lord, that are struggling with better work and better pay, because this has been a problem for a long time in our economy, God, that they would be able to get such good work. And we ask for more opportunities in that regard, Lord. Give them wisdom, give them perseverance to work hard, as unto the Lord as well, that they would do their duty before you and do their jobs well, that they would train themselves and uh, take proper correction, Lord, and to do well and maintain such things in their in their work that they would, above all, have what they need and to maintain their home, to maintain their family, God, financially and for the future and for a rainy day, we pray. We ask God for those in the military, those, Lord, who are in other industries such as the police and fire department for there, for the protection of our community and our nation, God, that you would be with them and for Christians in particular, God. Uh, it is a difficult, those are difficult careers to work in, Lord, and so we pray for them to have access to good chaplains and good churches, Lord, to have the Word of God, to use the technology given to them, Lord, to maintain uh, proper uh, relationships, Lord, with their friends and their family and the churches, God, and for those who are positive influence upon them, Lord, protect them, we pray, and I ask God in particular for those in the military that have to go far away, uh, overseas, on boats and the like, God, and they won't see other people other than their co-workers for a long time. Be with them, we pray. It's very hard upon the body and upon their mind that they would get the resources they need and uh, protection, God, again, from the wicked one and from temptations all around them and more and more temptation in these fields and all jobs, it seems, uh, to give up on the Lord Jesus Christ, to give up on his law and the holiness that we we're called to and to give up on his gospel, which is the free grace of salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We ask, God, that you would continue to be with us as churches, and even as Americans, as we pray for our fellow Americans, because we love them, and that's called, that we are called to love our neighbors, and that includes them, Lord, uh, that these matters of COVID and others like sicknesses, but especially that, Lord, uh, would go back to normal and by normalcy, Lord, I don't mean that we ignore it, because it has indeed affected our church, uh, hurt, it, uh, hurt us, Lord, insofar as we've lost uh, loved ones, but Lord, that they who are high risk in particular would have access to and should have had access from day one, Lord, uh, to good protection and the like, God. And we ask that you would watch over them and give us wisdom and continue patience for one another. And Lord, we ask that you would, uh, again, move the hearts of our magistrates, both local and national, to do the right thing and not use it to their own political evil ends. We ask God for continued growth and sanctification, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love one another, our Lord and Savior, to continue to learn your word, to follow your law, and Lord, to grow in unity and the love of the Spirit and fruits of the Spirit, God, for one another in our Christian life. Be with us, we pray this morning, and all these things we pray. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings.
Let us rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. We lift up these tithes and offerings, God, through the blood of Christ Jesus, and knowing that indeed you own all things, and yet uh, you only ask for a portion, Lord, a part of the whole, so that we can, Lord, always be reminded of who is number one in our life, and that you are our Master and our Savior. We ask that these tithes and offerings... Lord, be used wisely, give our church, our session, and the monies that they go to as well elsewhere, Lord, across our denomination and those in need to be used wisely, Lord. Give them the spirit of wisdom and understanding to multiply these things for the work of the kingdom, we pray. Amen. Well, we are standing. Let us go ahead and sing hymn 445, 445. Ten Commandments, it's found in your hymn book, it's a green sheet, that way we're reading the same Let us say it together, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves any carved image 
or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath for the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Hear also the words of our Lord Jesus, how he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Let us turn to our Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Verses 16 and 17. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Let us pray. With these comforting words, God Almighty, we pray and ask uh, that we would be encouraged to stand firm in the truth, in our belief, Lord, and our trust in your salvation, that the gospel is the good news that God's power and righteousness saves believers, saves sinners, in fact, God. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Remember that time you were asked to explain your answers, give a a short little speech in school in front of a whole classroom? Probably happened at least once for many of you. Or when you had to give a talk, perhaps at work, explain some stuff to your boss or a new worker, a small little group. What was your first response? No, thank you. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to embarrass myself. But after you stumbled through the presentation, you were still embarrassed You hid your head in your hands. You were ashamed. However, Paul is not ashamed, embarrassed at all. 
fact, he was highly motivated in his talks, in his public lectures. Why? What do we read here in verse 15 before we read to verse 16 and 17? So as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. He is motivated. Specifically, he was called to preach to everyone. Verse 14, we go back a little further. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. He's saying to everyone. However you want to classify and categorize the division of people as they did back then, Paul says, I am a, I am a debtor. I, I owe them the preaching of the gospel. And that's a tall order at the day and age in which he found himself in, as it is today. Christianity at the time was an outlawed religion. That is, it was legally outlawed. It was illegal. It was not recognized by the state, by Rome. And it was hated by the Jews, as we know. We went through, I preached through the book of Acts. You recall over and over again how they tried to undermine the gospel, how they tried to undermine Peter and Paul and even kill him several times. They had the Jews influence even upon Gentiles in Gentile cities and riled up the crowds against Paul. It is the call to preach the message of Jesus Christ that was ridiculed by the world at the time and hated in particular, scoffed by the Jews and laughed out of court by the Gentiles. Because every person and every leader and every individual, however small or great at the time, hated the gospel. Paul faced an uphill battle, didn't he? To be publicly identified with that which was ridiculed, hated, and undermined would be embarrassing indeed. But for Paul, it was not embarrassing at all. To the Greeks, it is foolishness. To the Jews, blasphemy. To preach the gospel should make Paul blush. It should be embarrassing. It should be humiliating. But it was not. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. He is not embarrassed to believe and pronounce his belief to the world and preach to them, Jesus Christ saves sinners. To him it was not foolishness. Why? Paul gives a reason here. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, verse 14, both to the wise and to the unwise. This is my audience, everyone. So as as much as in me, because I have this debt, that is, I have this requirement given to me by the Spirit, by Christ in particular, as we know, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. He brings up shame because he knows the audience he's dealing with these new believers in Rome, the first church of Rome, first church there and probably in Italy. These are all a series of firsts there in Acts. It's a small island of believers in a sea of ridicule and hatred, and it would be easy to be embarrassed. It's a new thing to the world at the time, and a thing that was hated and with much suspicion, as we recall, the things that it made up about them. We went over church history in Sunday school class. Paul was not ashamed. Paul was emboldened, in fact. He was quite the opposite. Not only because of his commission given to him directly by Christ Jesus on the road to Damascus, but especially because I am not ashamed. It is the power of God to salvation. Why should I be ashamed of God's power? I am proclaiming it to the world that they need to be saved. Paul offers then these reasons why he is not ashamed, and why he will continue to preach and not give up. And in giving these reasons, he is 
unfolding for us in a short order here. It's very dense, and he unpacks it through the rest of the book of Romans. You can look at this as the thesis statement of Paul of the book of Romans. This is what I'm going to talk about. This is what I'm going to unpack, and he does, through the book of Romans. The first point is, he is not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is, as I am finishing this series on basic stuff of Christianity, the gospel is the power of God. It is the power of God, not the power of man, not the power of angels, not the power of made-up things, not abstract power, but real power, such power as man cannot comprehend. It is not the power of what man can comprehend. Such power is weak and fleeting. Such power is unreliable. Even kings are subject to assassinations. Their power is not ultimate, but limited. As much as we call them despots, despots and dictators in many ways are still limited in this world and in this age. Paul is not confident in man. Paul is not confident in princes or kings or powers of this world, but in the creator of heaven and of this world. He who created the things of this world is greater than this world, just as he who created the pot is greater than the thing he created, the pottery itself. He can crush it as he wills. And so this is our God. This is Paul's God. And it's the power of God. The gospel is the power of God, not of anything else. But to what end? The power of God for what? What does God use his power for? Well, he uses it for creating all things. He uses it for sustaining all things. That's why you are here and you can breathe and live and have your being because of God himself. That you're comfortable, that you're well-educated, that you have a full belly is because of God's power and not your own. What power you have, as you know, ultimately is derived from him, is dependent upon him. And so the power of God is not for the creation in this context. And his confidence in the gospel as the power of God is not because it sustains all things in his providence, but specifically for the salvation of souls. For the salvation of souls. Nothing else. The gospel is not about the power of God to make you rich, to make you prosperous, to help you live longer, to have your best life now. And that is not the power of the gospel. It's not there to embarrass your enemies. It's not there to make you feel good and have so, uh, your selfish desires fulfilled or petty interests. People teach that. People bring that kind of a gospel to this world. That's not the true gospel. That's a false gospel. That is not the power of God. That's not why God has exercised His power and His might through the good news, for that is what the word gospel means, the good news. To make your life a better roses in this world. That's not what it's there for. Others, so, so-called enlightened thinkers, believe the gospel is the power to finally see your true self. I read about this stuff and mystical things in my you know, many years of being a minister and training and the like, and cults and the like, but never ran across it until recently on social media where someone on Twitter defined the gospel and the power of God this way. They said, quote, salvation is awakening and remembrance that we are good. What? This person claims to have read the Bible. Of course, in this day and age, I don't even know what that means anymore. What Bible are you talking about? Do you even know how to read? I, I don't. 
This is the furthest thing from Paul's mind. It is wrong and dangerous. Paul says none of that. That person had 25,000 followers, by the way, so it's not just a blip on the radar. Paul says, it is the power of God to salvation. And he unpacks what that salvation is about, as we know in the first three chapters, more or less, of Romans, in which he describes the sin of the world. Verses 18 and following, that the whole world knows that there is a God, there is judgment, but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. He goes on to list those sins, and then in chapter 2 he explains, oh, you, oh man, who think you're an exception to this because you're a Jew and you're not a Gentile, you too are a sinner. And he unpacks that through the rest of chapter 2. And he concludes in chapter 3, We therefore conclude <laughs> that all are under sin. All are sinners and under the power of death and hell. This is why you need the gospel. This is why you need the power of God. So the thesis is further buttressed and supported, verses 16 and 17, by his unpacking the first three chapters of Romans. This is why you need the gospel, because you are lost and dead in trespasses and sins. You need the power of God to save you. And what kind of power is that? How powerful is the gospel of Jesus Christ? What about divine justice? Who can satisfy God's perfect law? Who has the power to appease God's divine wrath? What about sin? Who can atone for breaking God's law? Who can remove the guilt of sin from your conscience? What about the devil? Who can stop the lies and its deception? Who can cast them into hell forevermore? What about death itself? Who can overcome eternal death? Who can triumph over the grave? This outline of the obstacles that have to be overcome to be saved... God's divine justice, your own sins and the consequences therein, the devil, the world, the flesh, and death itself. When you understand that, then you understand the power of God because he overcomes every one of those obstacles by his own power. That's salvation. That's the good news. That's why Paul is not embarrassed because God saves sinners by his own power and might exercised through the good news. And he understands what that power entails, what kind of power it is that brings you to salvation, brothers and sisters, because you know yourself you cannot satisfy God's God's divine justice. You cannot assuage your own guilty conscience. You cannot tell the devil off. And you cannot overcome death. Death will consume you. You will die. But praise be to God through Christ Jesus. He has the power and has overcome the devil, death, sin, and satisfy God's divine justice. And Paul unpacks that through the book of Romans. This is the book, this and the Gospel of John, that you give to people who don't know anything about Christianity. Tell them to read through this and ask questions. The Gospel is the power of God, the power of the Creator of heaven and earth, exercised to the salvation of Salvation of whom? As we know, salvation of sinners for everyone who believes. Both the Jew and the Gentile. The gospel is not only the power of God, it is the righteousness of God. Verse 17. 
For in it, he hasn't changed the subject. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God. It is the righteousness of God. This is the gospel in a nutshell. The righteousness of God. God's righteousness that is revealed and given to sinners in particular, as he unpacks, especially in chapter 4, when he talks about who? Abraham, David, and how he argues from the Old Testament text itself that they were not saved by circumcision, they were not saved by being a Jew, they were not saved by being obedient enough, they were saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Yes, even Abraham, because he was justified we read in the Old Testament, before he was circumcised, before he was formally brought into the covenant. You can't say everything in one sentence, so Paul condenses that here in his thesis statement, verses 16 and 17, for in it the gospel is the righteousness of God is revealed, the perfection of God, his moral uprightness. Only God is righteous in the absolute sense. At best, we are relatively righteous. And as we know, even then, our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. And Luther realized that as well. Remember the story of Luther? How, through various issues in his life, he saw more and more of his own sins and went to the monkery, thought that would help him with his sins, and he just ended up meditating all day long about his sins. He knew he was a sinner. But then he had a pivotal point in his mind. He would read the Bible. He knew the original languages. He was learning and studying at the time. He would read through Romans, and he would read this text, for in it, the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed. And every time he read the righteousness of God in the Bible, every time he read this particular text even, it terrified him. That the gospel would be re, would reveal, that's the verb, right? To bring forth a revelation, make clear to you the righteousness of God. And he read that as in God's divine justice. For the word righteousness, even in the Bible at times, is used in the sense of the uprightness of God and how you are not upright, you are not righteous, and your comparison to God is as but a worm. And you need to repent. And you need to be saved. You're on your way to hell. You are unrighteous. So he read this in a condemnatory fashion of God's righteous indignation, his moral perfection as a standard you will never meet, as he discovered in the monastery. He read it as bad news. For that's basically what he was taught through the Roman Catholic Church of the high medieval ages. That you have to obey enough to be justified, to be declared righteous, to have a standing in God's law court. Or you will fail. That is, God is righteous, morally perfect and upright, and we are not. And the gospel reveals that to us, and thus we feel miserable. And so the good news became bad news for him, because he misunderstood what it means when it says, The righteousness of God is revealed in it, the gospel. Remember, the word gospel means good news. That's the literal translation of it. It finally dawned upon him upon great meditation and going through the Romans in particular and paying attention to what Paul argues there, as I highlighted in chapter 4, 
Paul just digs into the idea of righteousness and justification and how you are justified and how you are declared righteous by faith and faith alone. And then it finally made sense that the just shall live by faith. It was not a faith in and through self-effort that brought life and righteousness, but faith in the person and work of Christ that brought righteousness. That's what finally made sense to him. And thus this became good news. For him. I mean, Why would Paul say otherwise? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. In it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to to faith, as it is written, he quotes the Old Testament, Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. Those who are justified are those who believe. Believe in what? Jesus Christ. That he lived and died for you. That's the good news. Not by obedience, it's by faith. Not by baptism, it's by faith. Sure, you have to be baptized. Sure, you have to be obedient or strive to it. But at the end of the day, you know you're going to fall short. It's always by faith. In particular, justification, of course, you don't add to justification. That is your right standing before God in his courts by your obedience, by your baptism, by your church membership. Justification is done by faith alone and Christ alone. You have Christ's righteousness, the righteousness of God in Christ, as we read elsewhere in the Bible, as he implies here where he says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, not the gospel of God, although that's true, but of Christ, because it's Christ's righteousness, his perfection that is imputed to you. And thus God sees his righteousness, not your unrighteousness. That's the good news. That's justification by faith alone in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Righteousness of God revealed in the gospel was the righteousness of God in Christ granted to the sinner by faith alone. That is the good news. That is the wonderful news. And that's the comforting news. That's the gospel. It's the power of God and it's the righteousness of God revealed and given to sinners who repent and believe in Christ Jesus. It's the righteousness of Christ given. The gospel is about the good news that you don't need to be righteous enough, that is, to obey God's law enough to justify yourself, to be the warrant to get into heaven. See, I've obeyed enough. I've got enough on the scale on this end as opposed to my sins on the other end. So please let me in, God. And God's like, I'm a righteous God. I don't grade on a curve. It's 100% or it's nothing. Luther realized that, and so Luther felt miserable until he understood that God in Christ Jesus, saves those who believe in Christ Jesus, and he imputes to them, that's justification, Christ's righteousness to their account, as though they had never sinned. And that's good news indeed. He covers their sins by the cloak of Christ's righteousness. The language of Isaiah 66, verse 10, 61, excuse me, verse 10 is very helpful. The imagery of the Old Testament. We went over this in Zechariah earlier this year. He was clothed, he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me in a garment of righteousness. That's the picture of justification. Of the good news, of the power of God. It is God and His power through Christ Jesus who gives you a cloak that's not your own. It's Christ's cloak of righteousness of salvation, 
of moral perfection that's given to you. And God no longer sees the nakedness of your sin, but that you are clothed in Christ's garment of perfection and righteousness. That's the good news. And it's good news because, like Luther, you see your sin even as a, as a Christian. You struggle with your sin, and you have to remember again and again, it is not how good you are, but how good Christ was. It's not how righteous you are, but how righteous Christ is. That is your warrant for heaven, and you are going to heaven. In the New Testament we read in Philippians 3.9, where Paul writes that I may be found in him, that is Christ, not having my own righteousness, my own moral perfection, how good I am in thought, word, and deed, in obeying God's Ten Commandments. His prayer and hope and his confidence is, I may be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, Right? How good can you obey the Ten Commandments? But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Righteousness given to you by faith, not by how much you obey the law. That's what he said. And my hope and confidence is in that. And if that's where your hope and confidence is, brothers and sisters, no matter how much you struggle with sin, no matter how many times you can write it down, how many sheets you can fill up, God has the power to cover it with Christ's blood, and he does. So Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God to save, and it is the righteousness of God to give to those sinners who believe. And that's the third point. The gospel is the salvation of sinners. It's the power of God, it's the righteousness of God, and it's the salvation of God for sinners. For sinners, brothers and sisters... Think about that. Not for those who are perfect, not for those who obey enough, but to sinners. To anyone, verse 16, for everyone who believes, first to the Jews and also to the Greeks. So it's not by birth, not by being Jewish or special, not by obedience, not by, again, being Jews who have the Ten Commandments, God's law given to them on Mount Sinai, and the Gentiles don't have that. What's their problem? Rich, poor, or male or female, young or old, Italian or African, it doesn't matter, is what he's saying here. We call the barbarians elsewhere, Greeks and barbarians. Our great forefathers were barbarians. I have Germanic blood. And yours were probably two. And it's to any person, and therefore to any sinner. Again, it's in compact form. You don't say everything in one thesis statement. We, we read elsewhere, obviously, in chapter 1, 2, and 3. All these people, the whole world, he concludes, is under sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he says in Romans 3, quoting the Psalms. And none seek after God. No, not one. Because they seek out their own gain and their own desires, their own gods. And so the gospel is to save sinners. It is the good news. Why? Because it saves sinners. That's the good news. There's no good news if it only saves people who are obedient enough because no one's obedient enough. He just concludes that in the entire first three chapters. In Romans 5, he says very explicitly, the good news, God saves sinners. God justifies the ungodly, he says in chapter 5. God justifies the ungodly. Think about that. You go to court... You bring the murderer, you're, you know, they kill your family or something. You say, judge, declare him guilty. Here's all the evidence. 
judge is like, oh yeah, he's full of, but I'm going, to, I'm going to justify him. I'm going to declare him righteous. What? How can that be? Because another person, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, suffered in his stead, suffered in your stead, took the punishment in your stead, took your sins upon his shoulders and on the cross, brothers and sisters. That's the salvation of sinners. That's the justification of sinners. Not the God is justifying, like you hear in the English language, where God's making excuses and saying it's okay to sin. He's not saying that at all. Because Christ died for sinners. God upheld his justice. Someone had to suffer. And God had so designed it that when in Adam's fall, we sinned all. But in Christ's resurrection, we are raised to heaven in new life, Ephesians 2. Because he represents his people. It's any sinner, brothers and sisters. It's any sinner. This is one reason why the gospel is offensive and embarrassing to some people. Because it's so free in who it saves. It's the good news that God saves even murderers and terrorists. And it's not just the small sins, it's the big sins. All sins. That God will forgive in Christ Jesus if we but believe and trust in Him to save us. It's by faith alone. We have this here. Again, summarized here the just shall live by faith in verse 17. Not the just shall live by works. Remember the Jewish audience at the time and the Pharisees are like, we obey enough, we follow the law enough. That's why Paul hammers over and over again in Romans and Galatians and elsewhere in Philippians somewhat. It's not by works, lest any man should boast, Ephesians chapter 2. Not by how much you follow the Torah. Jews, you got it all wrong. Yeah, you got to follow God's law, but that's not what saves you. You do it because you already are saved. And so the gospel, the good news here, is more specifically focused upon justification by faith and faith alone and nothing else. The just shall live by faith. He quotes Habakkuk 2.4. And again, that's quoted again in Galatians 3 and Ephesians 2.8. Faith, that is, trust, rest, and reliance upon Christ and his righteousness, not your own righteousness. The gospel of God, the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed in Christ Jesus, given to you by faith alone. Not by faith plus works, not by faith plus ceremonies, not by faith plus good intentions, some mixing therein. It's simply by believing and trusting in God and Christ to save you. This is also why the gospel is ridiculed in some circles. It seems too easy. Just believe and repent. Just trust that Jesus lived and died for you. But it is that simple. That's why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. It's not some complex, convoluted way of trying to obey enough to get to heaven, be good enough in your thoughts and intents to get to heaven, but that you're not good enough and God, through Christ Jesus, accepts you anyways because of Christ's righteousness. That's why we should not be ashamed of the gospel, brothers and sisters, but rather we should stand firm and rejoice and speak the truth when asked. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is. Gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the righteousness of God imputed to you 
The gospel is the salvation of sinners who believe in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. We thank you, God, for giving us the good news, for giving us the book of Romans, for raising up the likes of Paul to explain these things to us, Lord, and that we too should not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God, it is the righteousness of God, and it is the salvation of God to those who live by faith and faith alone in Christ alone. In your name alone we pray. Amen and amen. Let us stand and let us sing hymn 297, 297. of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.